Hello, and welcome back to the Natural Dye Podcast, a place to hear the voices of individuals using color from nature. My name is Kelsey, and I'll be your host today. Delani Tanahi is a kapa maker, artist, and teacher who focuses on kapa making in the Hawaiian Islands using natural dyes and pigments to create her incredible work on bark cloth. In this episode, Delani discusses some of the history of Hawaiian bark cloth and how she came to teach herself and others about natural dyes, tool making, and kapa making. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Natural Dye Podcast. Well, my name is Delani Tanahi. Um, I am a kapa maker, not copper. Sometimes people hear that it's kapa, K-A-P-A, which is the Hawaiian name of the native bark cloth that was made uh, not only in Hawaii and not only in Polynesia, but kind of all over the whole world. There are places everywhere around the world where people made bark cloth. And, um, you know, when I talk to students about about clothing and we kind of have to define what uh why did people wear what they wore and so we say well you know where did they live are they in a cold place did they notice that the polar bears looked really really warm and maybe they needed that polar bear jacket or do they live in a hot place where you would think maybe we wear cool things but the sun is blasting on you all day you need to cover up Did you live in a place that had lots of plant materials where people somehow figured out how to manipulate them, twist them, make them into threads? Or did you live in a place where they were where there were plants that people somehow figured out that if you beat the fibers, you can make those fibers spread out and you can wrap those around you and make clothing out of that. So it's interesting because, you know, I tell I tell my students, look in the tag in your shirt and what are you wearing now? They say, oh, it's cotton and um, polyethylene or, you know, polyester things. I said, okay, so essentially you're wearing, you guys all seen a cotton ball. You know what that looks like. That's what it looks like on the plant. How did that turn into your shirt? And, you know, polyester is plastic, which is made from oil, which comes from dinosaurs. So you're wearing a cotton ball and a dinosaur, essentially. That's, that's what your clothing is. And it, it has to make them think, well, what the heck? You know, how did these things and how did people think of these things and what did they do? So bark cloth making originated in China. That's where they were able to track the, um, the origin of the paper mulberry trees and also tools that were used to beat those mulberry that bark into the, the, uh, the finished, you know, the, the cloth. And um, in a plant, it's the, the phloem layer that they use, not the, not the cambium layer, which sounds fancier to me, because phloem just sounds like phlegm, but that's the layer in, in every plant that brings water up from the roots to the leaves. And so every plant has it, but not every plant that layer can be taken off and then manipulated. So paper mulberry, the Brosinidia papyrifera, is one of these trees. Um, banyans can do this, ficus, breadfruit trees even, and a number of um, hibiscus. And, and so there's quite a few plants that can be used. Um, we use the paper mulberry. And so <clears throat> in the story of kappa making, if 
you know, if you look up, if you go get on Google, you look up Kappa or Tapa, then you'll find things um, that people are actually familiar with these designs from uh, the South Pacific, big, you know, brown and black geometric kind of designs. People know this. Um, and in those places, if you went to Samoa, Tonga, Fiji, Papua New Guinea, a lot of these kind of areas, the people there who made that, even as their cultures moved up into modern times, they never did stop making that bark cloth. And whether they were able to, to hold it close uh, for cultural use, or if they were able to um, you know, economize with it by using it, by selling it to people, people collected all over the world, um, they were able to keep the plants and the knowledge in force. In Hawaii, um, a lot of things happened to us. And then also our location made us kind of a, a flashpoint for a lot of things happening in the 17, 18, up to the 1900s, up to now still. And uh, Hawaiian women stopped making bark cloth. And there were a lot of reasons for that. Um, some, were, some were cool, like, you know, innovation. I mean, people saw cloth and it's like, what, really? We, we don't have to pound trees and we can have something on our body that lasts longer. And so they were pretty amazed. And actually, when Hawaiian women saw fabric, they tried to reinterpret the designs, which at that time would have been things like calicos and, you know, these little small prints that that people had and uh, they tried to replicate that on their kappa because we would see this change in the design of kappa from when Captain Cook arrived. And over time, the fabric was coming, the kappa was changing um, because the women were so impressed with it. The chiefs kind of controlled everything that was happening in the islands as far as commerce, as far as who's coming, who's going, what's happening. And as they began to realize that they needed to get out into the world and make treaties and meet other world leaders and kind of be a part of that, they realized that they weren't going to wear their native bark cloth, which was very simple. It was either a wraparound skirt called a pa'u for women, or it was a, a loincloth called a malo for men. And they weren't going to visit the Queen of England dressed like that. So as soon as those connections started happening, especially in trade, which went from England to New England, stopping in Hawaii to refuel, get food, um, and then on to China, and then back again. So we became part of that whole trade route. And so as things came from England, as things came from China, the chiefs were able to obtain quite a few, you know, very new objects. We didn't even have metal in Hawaii. We needed a knife. We used a shark's tooth knife or obsidian from the lava. Or you can make a pretty sharp knife from a piece of bamboo, too. So when they got metal, you know, blew their minds also to have stuff like that. So the chiefs began importing very, very nice clothing. And if you ever go to the palace, you can see the, the or Iolani Palace here in Honolulu. Um, you can see the kind of things that they were wearing at that time in the very early 1800s. So <clears throat> over time, um, kappa making, even though it, it kind of reached the zenith and how beautiful it was, how soft it was, very different from other bark cloths we see. Um, but also there were land issues happening where people were being moved off their land. There were 
health issues happening where people were getting, where mass people were getting very sick and dying. Hawaii is no stranger to isolation, to quarantine, to mass disease. We're all about that stuff. Um, and so this combination of things all happening, like within barely a hundred years, um, Hawaiian women stopped making kapa. So the women who make that now, none of us are ancestrally trained, meaning none of us had an ancestor who learned from an ancestor who learned from an ancestor who actually did it when that's all they were doing. Or even after that, my mom, you know, people ask me, did your grandmother teach you that? No, my grandmother, no, she, no. And probably not her mom and probably not her mom were doing it either. So we really had like a zero hands-on connection to, to this art. And when it started again, you know, a lot of what, a lot of it was going to the museums, hanging out in there, going to the South Pacific islands, sitting with those guys, because the production is basically the same wherever you go. There's, there's just little differences in the tool making, little differences in your final product, in some of your dye materials, you know, different things like that. And so, um, so we were able to kind of, you know, bring Hawaiian kapa back online. Um, and people here have been doing that since about the late 60s, early 70s. There were some women, Malia Solomon and Pua Van Dorp and Moana Isley and some of these people um, who were kind of the forefront of that. And then they were teaching and, and getting that out there. So I learned this in like 19, about 1995. I took a class, made some tools, got some baby trees. The teacher who taught us how to how to make the tools didn't teach us how to make kappa, which I thought was like, why? What did you teach us? Oh, that's why we're here. But she gave us the baby trees. So I planted them, watched them grow. Okay, uh, paper mulberry grows very quickly. And um, tried to figure some stuff out. A friend of mine was a teacher at University of Hawaii who uh, was, was teaching a brand new fiber arts class. And so she kind of told me, uh, just, you know, just pound it and... Yeah, you'll figure it out. It's like, yeah, okay, useless information, but really the only good information because it's an art, like any art, I guess, you know, where you have to develop a relationship with your materials, with your technique, with the tools you're using. You have to understand how all these things are going to work together to produce something. So, um, because pounding the tree bark is one thing, but the tools that they used to make it were fairly specific. They required specific trees because they would um, they would carve very thin lines on them, and that's what you would beat. But not every wood can bear being beaten on a wet piece of fiber um, and not crack or split or splinter. So now you had to understand the nature of wood and how those things work. Um, and then you have the dyes. And I've always told people that you can write a whole dissertation on dyes. And I, people have, you know, written, written extensively on um, using natural dyes. And in Hawaii, one of the differences for us was that um, because the, the bark cloth isn't cloth, it, you don't use a mordant on it, you know, in the, in the sense of mordants and how they act. That you, you put the mordant on the fabric, right? And then that's what locks the dye material to that so we don't have that when we look at some of the kappa that are you know 200 years old and they still have a lot of color more of that is either because the dye was an inorganic thing like um like 
oxidized earth and things like that, or just the heavy tannins that come out of dyes made from um, the, the sap of the tree barks that they would either squeeze or boil or do things like that. Um, and then one of the things about those dyes is that for the most part, the common people who are called Maka'ainana, those were the people who took care of the land. Um, and then the chiefs, and there was kind of a divide between them. So the chiefs predominantly had the prettiest kappa. And that's how you knew it was the chiefs. This guy comes walking in and he's got all this beautiful things on. You knew he was the chief. Um, but the, but Hawaiians also had, a, they were very spiritual people and they had a lot of beliefs and a lot of gods and a lot of entities. And, you know, you had your, your people uh, known as kahuna and kahuna is not the witch doctor. It's kahuna means secret. So kahuna is the keeper of the secrets, which would make them the professors. So they were the ones you went to, which tree do we cut down to make a log? When's the best time to fish for this specific thing? When is, you know, the, all these kind of things, the weather, whatever, the kahuna took care of this. Well, you also had kahuna called kahuna ana'ana, whose purpose was um, to control the entities who could cause death or misfortune to people. And... So they had beliefs, kind of like the Vudon of, uh, you know, the Caribbean, that if somebody got a hold of your hair, your clothes, your something, and gave it to one of these guys, they can just pray you to death and off you go. And that was a thing. So Hawaiian chiefs had retainers whose job it was to make sure that if they had a piece of fish, this guy took that fish bone and destroyed it. Um, if they had to use a bathroom, this guy took that thing you did and destroyed it. And some of your clothing, after you wore it, this guy took it and burned it. So having dyes that lasted a long time and remained color fast was not an issue. Let's fast forward to right now, where somebody orders a beautiful kappa. They want to hang it up on a wall with lots of beautiful bright light and lights coming in and everything is light on a thing that the dyes have no mordant, um, are not necessarily that color fast. And then that becomes an issue because after a while, a piece will, um, we don't like to say fade, we say mellow. The colors will mellow into other colors that will be very different from what you originally put on there. And so in my time, most of the couple work of original cup I do is um, commissioned. And so, you know, I, I ask people, where's this going to go? Will it go in a dark hallway where the lights are off all the time? So, you know, so it doesn't fade. Oh no, it's going to be out here where we can all see it. Okay. So let's talk about this. You're going to need to make sure it's not, doesn't have a lot of bright light. I mean, all light will, eventually fade things, right? Um, UV glass is, is also very good. And then over time, <clears throat> you know, and then a lot of us had to figure this out was the balance of, because people really want the natural dyes. That is, it's an integral part almost to making these kind of kappa. They want, they want to know that you use original tools, you know, that you, you beat it, it didn't run through a machine. They want to know that you were out gathering all these flowers and fruits and things and putting it all on this piece of kappa. That's what, that's what they're paying for. They want this, this entity thing. So um, you either have to figure out how to 
balance your non-fading colors with your ones that will, so that even if a thing fades, you don't just lose the whole image of what you did. And for the most part, our work is all it's geometrics. It's not paintings. It's not representational. There's no portraits and there's no um, landscapes. It's, it's just like geometries and abstract kind of things like that. So you have a lot of room to do that, where you can overlay your colors that you know are going to mellow with the things that you know will not. Like, you know, the blacks that we have, one of them is the candle nut tree, and it's got this seed. And, and traditionally, they did use it uh, because it's very oily. They would use that for lamps and lights. Um, but they also would burn it and then capture the soot of it like with a stone over a little fire of these of these nuts, capture the soot, then take the soot, mix that with oil of those seeds, and then make a dye. And I've done that once or twice, and I, I don't love that particular one. So for the longest time, I just didn't use black at all. And um, there were some browns that we could get and some pretty good dark browns. And then when I was teaching in Seattle, my students up there made me um, black walnut dye like fresh, like pick up black walnuts, throw them in the, in the bucket and just let them rot in there. So that was, but we're used to strange smells. So it was okay. And, um, and so I, I only had this, this dark dye for a long time, but then um, one time I, I broke my whole mode <clears throat> and I was going to do an actual picture on a piece of kappa. I don't like to do that because, because when you have a picture, then people focus on the picture. But when it's on, and they forget all the work at the tree you had to grow, all the time you had to beat it and all this thing you had to go through to make that, that paper. But this one, I wanted to do this thing. So I was kind of looking, I said, well, I'm going to need a black dye because I'm putting an octopus in this picture. And so I was looking at some stuff and I found where um, the Smithsonian had hired a woman to paint they have a, this giant long squid in a in a big case at the Smithsonian Museum for Natural History, and so she when she they opened it up so she could see it, and what was the dye that she used? Squid ink, and I went what squid ink? Now we used to use that, and I have, I've I've come upon places where guys were fishing and they were cutting open the squid they caught, and I said, could you by chance? find me the squid ink sack and it's a very small little bag and I, I eventually found out that it's not like this giant bag of ink because it's a secretion and you know secretions in water will disperse quite a bit they don't need a ton they just need enough to kind of get in your eyes so they can get away so it's not like it's this giant bag and then I would ask people you know if you catch squid just bring me home the ink sack and they're like you know we'll bring you home everything and you dig out the ink sack and squid have a lot of sacks and they're full of nasty things not always just ink so when i saw this woman painting the the portrait of the squid i went now where is she getting her dye you know what i wonder if mr amazon can tell me about this and sure enough they sell food grade squid ink in a little jar it's very concentrated it made me wonder oh how many calamari had to die for this jar of squid ink but um <clears throat> it's the one they put in the noodles and things like that so so that is my go-to black now and it's a beautiful black so you know over time we've had to look at things and how we can use them how they'll work in in the modern ways we use the kappa now um, 
there are things and chemicals that they used in older times to manipulate colors. So there's a tree here called noni. It's related to mulberry. It actually, that juice of that was very popular for a while um, as, a, as one of those things you drink and it cures everything. If you drank it raw, it would definitely because it's really nasty. So of course they mixed it in. It was big coming out of Tahiti and stuff. But the, the root bark of this tree is bright yellow. So I have one tree growing that I go out every so often and I'll just dig down a little bit and I'll scrape some of the, the bark off of that root and cover back up. It'll be fine. And um, that makes a very bright, clear, beautiful yellow color. Now, if you mix that, and this is what they used to do to make a red, was to take um, coral and burn it and then mix that with the squidding with not the squidding, with the noni it'll make a red color and i haven't quite mastered the recipe of that but other things you can use you know uh I, I use soda ash for a lot of different things as they do um and that will change it that will manipulate it so they probably did more color manipulating than actually trying to mordant things so you know as we make kappa the whole thing with the dyes just became is really important because we're not, you know, I mean, we have had to integrate acrylic paints or watercolor paints in just to help hold, you know, that image. People are paying big money for these things and you don't want them to come back in a couple of years and say, hey, that whole thing faded, nothing's left. So, you know, I resisted that for a long time. And, but I've started um, putting watercolor in with the natural dyes so that you kind of just have, you know, have the best of both worlds there. One of my friends, she was always using acrylic paint. She watered it down and, um, and used it because, you, you know, paint can sit kind of heavy. So you want things that are more inky or like a dye that can kind of be absorbed into that, that kappa. So, um, yeah, the dyes, crazy things part of being the kappa maker is also having dye materials, right? So every, every natural dye maker knows you got to either have your, your stash growing somewhere or like when people ask me, well, what's the palette? And I say, well, the palette is really pretty basic. And over the years that I've done stuff, you, you come down to your very stable dyes so all of the earth color things, and you know we have a lot of those that are kind of natural. I have these big blocks of red um, ociferous, um, what's, that, what's that called? The red dirt, it's an ociferous iron, ociferous oxide. So it's that iron oxide. And people here actually used to um, put mix that with their food too. There's a salt called Hawaiian salt, it's a natural salt, but they also make one where they dry it in a mixture of this red clay because that's how people would get their iron. Yeah, they would get their iron at that time. So, um, you know, if you have a block of that, you can grind that up, you can keep that forever. That's good forever. Um, some of the things from the tree barks, so that same candle nut that we got the black from also has this really beautiful red-brown color. And there's a couple ways to get it. One of my friends, they'll go, they'll scrape, and you can take so much off of a big tree. The tree has to be an older tree. You can take a certain percentage off. You don't want to damage the tree, but you can take some off, um, scrape it, 
then they'll roll it all up into like a canvas bag and then they'll just twist that bag as if you're just you know squeezing the juice out of something and that's a way to do it i also have done it where i i took that bark and it's kind of it's not the outer bark it's that inner bark where you can see all the sap and everything and it's red and then i would just boil that for about a week and then you know boil it down and then put it in another pot and do that keep boiling it down till nothing else could come out of the bark boil down the other so keep making these reductions of it until you get it to just about a syrup kind of thing because our printing is also on these little um bamboo sticks do i have one okay so here's here's a stick okay so i'll show you this is one that i started working on this is just a paper with the um with the design on it and then we would carve around it but this is what the dye has to go on to these are called ohekapala Ohe means bamboo. These are bamboo sticks. And then kapala means to print. And actually, when um, people when people were learning how to, like when the missionaries were teaching Hawaiians how to write, and the Hawaiians looked at the pen and said, oh, yeah, that's kapala. We do that already. They never wrote, but kapala meant to make a mark. So if you were painting by hand, if you were stamping with the bamboo, or if you got this pen, you were making a mark, that was kapala. So... Um, the ink has to be heavy enough that it can sit on that stamp. And so that's a whole, that's a whole other thing. Um, so there's, there's just so many things that you have to think about as you are trying to hold to the traditional way of doing this. There's a million things that can be modernized, which I have done. I mean, I've carved those stamps out of like that eraser rubber that I could use in ink pad because someone calls me and says, we're having a hundred people come to this event and they want to do some kind of, you know, native like thing, like a Hawaiian thing, but just fast and just quick and just coming, you know, nothing in this art is fast and come and go. But you see, this is, you know, as you know, as a teacher and trying to teach things that take hours and days and you got to compress it into a class or compress it into a semester, it's the same kind of thing. So I created things where you you can still learn um, why the designs were like this. You can still learn about the technique of using the tools with something that isn't strictly traditional. And it can't be. Because people, you know, these things, they're long, and so people don't know how to do that, and they break them. So we've had to alter that. People don't understand when it takes you two weeks to make a dye that you can't just slosh through it like you can go to Walmart and buy another jug of paint. There's no 55-gallon drum of these natural dyes. Although I did see an indigo one one time. I took an indigo class. Yeah, they had a 55-gallon drum of it. It was awesome. And then um, so there's a lot of mindset things you have to change with people with using natural dyes you know as dye makers know you're out gathering things so i have i have my my things that are stable that can stay in the refrigerator can stay out whatever then i have the things i can gather all the time so there are certain there's like this beautiful blue it's a it's a native lily the lily is called uki uki and it has these bright blue berries and those can freeze or dry really well so the, um, because it's a native plant and because Hawaii has a 
20% native plantings in new construction at my university. They planted a ton of this stuff. So when I go, I tell my students, get your Ziploc bag and pick all those things because no one is going to touch them but us. People look at them. They're there. They're great. Pick them, throw them in the freezer, and you'll have your blue dye all the time. So we do that. There's a flower that's also a native flower. It's, um, it's called ma'o. It's a native cotton plant. The cotton ball is not big. It's, it's more like a pussy willow. It's little. It actually helps save the United States cotton industry because of everything that was not disease resistant here in Hawaii, which was nothing. Everyone's come to disease. This cotton plant was very disease resistant. And so they bred it into the cotton that came out of the South and helped save that industry. So, but it has a beautiful yellow flower that makes a beautiful green color. Now the Hawaiian word for yellow is mele mele. That's one of the ones. But the word for green is oma'oma'o. The name of this bright yellow flower is ma'o. So right there, that gives you kind of a clue. And for a long time, when I would read, you know, when people would write about these things, people who didn't actually do them, but were more or less parroting things they had read and said, oh, yeah, the... Um, the flowers make a yellow dye and the leaves make a green dye. Well, no, the leaves make like a champagne colored dye and the flowers make a very bright, like, like fresh grass kind of green, just a beautiful green color, which it oxidizes. So you make the dye and then you paint it on and it's kind of this weird brown, but then it'll turn green. And then as time passes, it turns other greens, and then it's this dark green, and then it's this military green, and then it will vanish completely, and your jar will be a blank, empty water. It's really weird. So you are kind of, you know, you have to watch these dyes and what they do and when you can use them. And if I need this bright green, I need to make it now. If I need that other green, I'll wait till next week until I paint. So you can't really... Um, you can't really be like a slave to the color. Well, you are a slave to the colors, to the palette, because there's not a lot of manipulating in it. When you paint on kappa or print on kappa, um, there's not a lot of fading and a lot of um, nuance like in watercolors. You know, if you put a lot of paint or if you put a lot of water, you're going to you're going to create this whole range of shades and gradients and things like that and in the kappa dyes we don't require that because that's not how they painted um as people have moved on of course as artists we want to also express our own thing you know going on but at the same time because hawaiian kappa is done now there's a lot more people fortunately everybody who who, who picked this up and decided to do it which is still like you know, that many of us, uh, a hand, couple handfuls, um, also taught it. So, you know, I've been teaching. When I learned to do this, I was hired by this Hawaiian nonprofit organization um, to teach it. And auspiciously, and that's how I knew, even though I waited 15 years to get that class of the tool making, and then a couple more years, you know, of kind of struggling through it. Then I met these people who had this nonprofit that was all about teaching Hawaiian children, education, about food, about art. And they had planted 
those the paper mulberry tree at their site. They had this beautiful site back in the mountains. They had recently created and written a whole curriculum on teaching kappa hands-on to fourth graders. That was, um, you know, they had a DOE uh, curriculum writer help them write it so that they could use it in the school. They had these trees, they had everything. All they did not have was a teacher. And so I met this guy and he told me you were doing this thing. And I noticed you, you're doing, you do this. And I said, I'm kind of just learning. I don't really know what I'm doing yet. He says, well, you know, <clears throat> we, we'd love to have a teacher teach this program. And I said, okay, well, that's pretty awesome. But two, two problems here. I don't know anything about making kappa yet. And I am mortified about speaking in front of people. I, I can't do it. No. I don't care if they're eight years old. They're even worse. I, I can't. Ultimately, I took that job, which was the best thing ever. And very interesting because I was an artist all my life. You know, I was one of those kid artists drawing on everything. My class reunion, people still come up to me and say, I still have the dragon you drew on the back of our math homework. I said, I believe you. Um, so I was, you know, illustrator and painter and I loved to clay. And I, you know, we did stuff all the time. Um, and so that that part wasn't a problem, but as you teach, you realize how different it is. And when you are learning an art and teaching the art, you are also learning, you pay close attention to your students. And so I would watch these kids and where we were teaching is out here, there was predominantly Hawaiian and Polynesian community. So all these kids are Hawaiians and Tongan Samoans. And I teach them everything. And we come in with the actual tools, clubs, knives made with shark's teeth, um, you know, all these colors from dirt and leaves and berries and things. And the kids are like, yes. And the teachers are like, what is that? <laughs> the teachers were actually great. They all signed on for this. And, and I'd watch these kids because I'm about at their level, really. And, and they're talking and laughing and they're pounding this tree bark. And the thing is spreading and spreading and spreading. And I'm like, what? How are they doing this? And I say, hey, have you done this before? They're like, what? Nope. Just having fun, lady. And, you know, they're just they're just going and, and having a great time. And, um, and and then as you see the parameters you have to work within and all these things. And then when you try and break free and be an artist, artist, well, you just don't know how to act. Because it's like, well, I'm so used to it acting this way within this amount of time and this. And sometimes it's hard to just let it go and do whatever it needs to do because you've had to control every single thing. What are dyes that I can pick, that I can find those resources that children can actually do and create something with? And because I've been able to make it look so easy all these years and people call me all day, I mean, before the crisis, um, I was teaching like almost every day and not only, you know, my, I teach at the university, I teach Kappa and then I was teaching at the Academy of Arts and I, I teach at the Aulani Disney Resort and I do a class with them and, you know, and I make, uh, you know, I make um, adjustments for our time and, and the, you know, what, what we're trying to teach people, but then people would call me randomly, constantly all the time um, because I made all of that look so easy. So easy to have all these dyes, so easy to have all these tools, so easy to have all these trees. And I, I've grown my own paper mulberry all this time. There are no orchards of paper mulberry. 
there are not mass quantities of it. The, the week before everything shut down, I had to take up 60 or 70 trees to um, one school that they were going to do a class, one girl visiting from New Zealand, a cup of maker, she wanted some, um, a project I was doing. I had to cut all these trees. Fortunately, that tree grows like you plant one today, you'll have 50 in a year. So that's how that will spread if it's happy. So I was able to do that. But people don't people don't think about that and realize this is a resource that is not everywhere. So I've had to, you know, scold people about, you know, if you want this thing and you want you want to make it for your whole group, your whole hula group all wants to dance in Kappa, then you guys need to see me two years ago and let's grow trees. So you're gonna, you guys need to be looking around where you live and what are you going to use for those dyes? What's, what, what are things you can gather? What are you going to make this out of? Do you even look around at what's growing? Do you see the colors? I did that with my university class. And at our school, they planted beautiful things. And, you know, we took a piece of kappa and I just had them pick things and rub it on their kappa to see the colors. And they just, they were like, you know, we've been to school here all this time. We never saw all of this. We never saw all these colors growing, this, this blueberry and this yellow thing and this orange thing. You walk through the plants. I said, but traditionally, and all people had to live like this at one time, when you walk through a forest or you walk through the garden and it was wild things, you still saw your house, your canoes, your medicine, your clothing, your dyes, your food, all of these things. We walk through the plants. We go, oh, that's pretty. Oh, this is nice and shady. Oh, look, something's growing. We better cut down all those coconuts before they hit somebody on the head. They grow coconut trees everywhere in Hawaii. Then they have to come out, cut all the coconuts off. Why would you do that? Grow something else. I don't understand. So anyway. Um, so, yeah, so the, the dye making aspect of kapa making as, as again, you know, it's just such an integral part. Um, and I feel that they, when you use those dyes with those designs on the kappa, then the whole thing becomes the conversation, including the kappa, not just the design on the kappa. People have to ask, so how is, you know, when you print with those stamps, it's, it's the one stick. You print with it um, next to each other, like shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, so that that design all blends into a single element. And then when you look at it on the kappa, you don't really, you're not really sure how that was made. Was it this big giant stamp? And they just like a block printing with this design. They don't realize it was this tiny little stick printed over and over and over again. And that's by design, it's, it's contrived to be printed that way. But every single time you don't just, you know, dip it in a bowl of dye because they have tiny little lines and spaces. You don't want dye clogging up in them. So you've got to apply it every time, apply it, set it, press it, pick it up over and over. I did a piece of kappa one time. It was 12 feet long by 12 inches wide. Each one foot section took me one hour to print with this way of printing with these tiny little over and over and over things. I did the first first foot of it and I went, oh my gosh, what have I done? But I was replicating a, an old design I had seen and I just loved it. So I did that. So yeah, all these things tie together. So when you look at a piece of kappa, you, you know, you see the designs as this thing, you see the dyes as this thing that took all this time and all these resources. And you see the kappa itself as this thing that was this 
up until recently, it was this growing tree that had to come down, be manipulated and beaten and soaked and, and all this different kind of stuff. So it, um, it, it lends itself well to being this whole conversation about resources. We live on an island. I tell people, just keep waiting. Pretty soon you're going to come to me for your clothing because, you know, you never know. You don't know what's going to happen. Where's your food growing at? Every time people cut a mango tree down where I live, the side of the island is kind of drier and mango trees grow really well here. I'm looking at mine out the window. It's covered with all the little tiny baby mangoes and people cut one down. It's food. Why are you cutting? We live on an island. Sure. Now they tell us everything's coming in. Okay. Nobody's going to, Costco's not going to shut down. Don't worry. But it, you know, it, it has before. So we have to be aware of our, our resources, how we use them. Um, yeah, things like that. So it's all very interesting. It's been very interesting teaching this for the last 25 years. I learned about matter and I learned about woe. I grew dyers, coreopsis, Japanese in gold. This episode of the Natural Dye Podcast has been produced by myself, Kelsey Doty, and my co-producer, Britt Bowles. Our theme song, Tinctoria, is written by Liz Galorn and her band. Please make sure to support them on Bandcamp. We hope you can join us next time, and thank you for listening to the Natural Dye Podcast. <laughs>